0: Judgment Studios. The Michelle Obama Podcast is out now on Spotify. This series brings listeners inside the former First Lady's most candid and personal conversations, showing us what's possible when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, to open up and focus on what matters most. Joining the former First Lady is an array of special guests, including Marion and Craig Robinson, Conan O'Brien, Valerie Jarrett. Michelle Norris, and Dr. Sharon Malone. Episodes focus on relationships that shape us, from siblings and close friends to partners, parents, and mentors, to our relationship with ourselves and our health. Listen free at Spotify.com slash Michelle Obama. Beautiful resort community of Wisconsin Dells, Last day of a huge church festival. I'm ten years old, waiting it out with ten thousand other church brethren, with only one real thought in mind. See, before we head home to Michigan, I'm gonna take my last eleven dollars, roll up to the Swiss Miss Fudge Shop, and get a nice big piece of Rocky Mountain Fudge. I'm gonna gobble it up on the drive back, and none of my brothers gets any unless and until. I deem them worthy. Just got to make it through these services. Got to stay awake. You know what? Maybe I won't get Rocky Road. Maybe I'll get Vanilla Nut. Nah, check it. Maybe I'll get a piece of both. I've earned this moment. See, we're supposed to tithe to give a tenth of our earnings to the church out of my paper route, my lawnmower, my grandmother's once a year envelopes, everything a tenth. Cool. But then in an innovation, perhaps unique to my church, there's another tithe, the second tithe. I pay up. But wait, there is more. Every third year, we have something called the third tithe. And this year, I'm supposed to come up with that third tithe money. No worries. I budgeted that. Of course, our church wouldn't be our church without special offerings, where you give of your heart to the Lord's work. I did that. Put it in their special envelope, Jack. Watch the deacon carry it away. First, second, third tithe, special offerings, everything. So I am paid in full. I'm right with the Lord. and I have $11 of holy fudge money left. Then I hear pastor. Brother, we are all blessed. And it's from this abundance that we give the access to the Lord's work. The tide of the tide. Excess time? The, the who? They can't be no such thing. And at $11 it starts feeling heavy in my pocket. Brethren, ushers are coming around one more time, right now. Ready for you to plant your seed in the kingdom of God. plane of a couple of chords, drifts, and piano. And then, I get it. I get it, I understand everything. My mother, looks down the aisle at me. Pops looks down the aisle at me. Everyone looks down the aisle at me. Really? Fine. Fine. I fill out an offering envelope. And when the deacons pass the basket to me, I put their envelope inside. On the way home, we pull over at the Swiss Miss Fudge Shop. I run out And buy exactly $11 worth of delicious fudge See, sure I put my offering envelope in the basket And I packed it full of the most important thing My prayers For peace, love, and goodwill towards men Today on Snap Judgment Technology Amazing stories from real people navigating a system that is out to get them. My name is Glenn Washington. Always remember to go for the sampler Fudge Pack. Best bang for the buck when you're listening. To Snap Now, we're going to start off today's show with a story from one of our favorite snappers. The story, it does reference some illegal activity. Abdul Kenyatta spoke to Anna Sussman.
1: I was born in Harlem Hospital. I lived on Lenox Avenue between 118th and 119th Street. Malcolm X would walk down the street on Lenox Avenue every day. So every day that he walked, I pretty much saw Malcolm walking down the street. And he would wait for the time of day, like when I would go down to the subway station to meet my father and walk my father back to the house from work, which was like two or three blocks away from the house, just to hook up with my dad. I would get there early, and I would listen to Malcolm speaking and make you turn against those who want to help you and make others turn against you. Malcolm would be outside the subway station and everyone would be standing up. And he would be standing, he didn't have a microphone, he stood on a ladder. and And he stood there and he spoke to the people as the people were coming out of the subway station and going into the subway station, but at some point there was always a crowd of at least a hundred people that was standing listening to what he was saying. All other people. Then he could teach this man a science called technology, which is the science of tricks and lies. And Malcolm had a lot to say, and he had a lot to say about the things that were going on in our community, and one of the things that was so obvious in our community was that our community was inundated with heroin. So he had to speak about heroin, and he told us about the trap that heroin was. The the trap is that they're bringing it into our community, but they're not spreading it around to their communities. You know, if it was in their communities, they'd understand that this was a dis-ease, but in our community, it's a crime. He said that heroin was a part of the technology of our oppressors to make us slaves. So that's a trap. Me and some friends, recognizing how dangerous things were in our community, recognized that it would be to our best advantage to come together and form a mutual protection association. We called ourselves a social club. The police called us a gang. We were the Seven Saints. We wore black wool sweaters with seven halos on the back. We wore black leather jackets, we had beards, we had big afros that sat on our shoulders. We meant to intimidate people when we walked down the street because we were intimidated by the society around us. One of the guys in our gang was Carmelo. He was my boy, you know, he always had my back. Carmelo was cool. We used to hang out, we went to school together. You know, we were in high school together. We studied together, we talked together. We, you know, we did everything together. He 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 was my guy. We went to a high school where there were six hundred people in our graduating class, but in that graduating class, maybe only maybe only ten people were informed about the fact of a regent scholarship exam, and of those, I only know one who passed that exam, and that was myself, okay. The, the deal is that uh, if you were African American there weren't a whole lot of uh, vocations that you could get into so I wanted to be a psychologist um, but I also knew that most of the people in my family who went to college were teachers so uh, Binghamton was the number one teacher college in the state of New York at that time so that was the major reason why I chose that I remember that My parents couldn't afford to come with me. I left, I took my bags, I I went to the bus by myself, got on the bus and and I went to school. So I, you know, I I got there. I I did not I had no clue that I was gonna be the only African American there. And I was the only African I was the first African American in that school. So I was walking across the college campus minding my own business and this white dude, another student approached me and engaged me in a little small talk. White boy John actually was his name. Then he asked me if I knew where he could get some heroin. My first reaction was negative but almost immediately I had an epiphany. Do I know where you can get some heroin? Do I know where you can get some heroin? I took that bus back to New York City, got off, took the subway, went back to Harlem. It took me a couple of couple of steps to get my step back, you know, to get my groove back. But after a couple of minutes, I had my groove back on. I was walking down the street, I had my bop on. When I go up to my people, guys in the Seven Saints, I'm like, yo, check this. I need to get some hair on. You know, and they like, what you need? How much you need? You know, I said, Let me get an ounce. They said, okay, we'll get you an ounce. And then they showed me how to take that ounce and cut that ounce in half and then use milk sugar to make two ounces out of the one ounce that I had. We wrapped it in in brown paper and I put it in the suitcase. I felt justified. I don't know, maybe it sounds silly to people, but I really felt like I was taking heroin out of Harlem and I made a lot of money, and I was like, man, I made a lot of money. But I was, I was cool, you know. I had my rev- did my revolutionary act. I made some money, and then White Boy John came back again, and he said, "Can you do it again?" And when he said, "Can you do it again?" I think that's when my mind kicked over into the to the capitalist part of what was going on. That's when I realized it was a capital gains kind of thing. I did not hesitate. I was like, okay. I'll do that, you know, and I went back and I did it again, and and I, I don't know if, if you understand what it's like to be 18 years old, and I'm making over $1,000 a week, 18 years old, over $1,000 a week, I never imagined that, my father made $70 a week, I had a big old car driving down the street with my friends in it, you know, I was cool and the gang. I was a happy man. I felt like my life was in balance. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I was a revolutionary and I was making money. Most revolutionaries don't make much money. In my heart, you know, I mean, maybe I look back at it now and I realize I'm, I was naive and 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 that I really wasn't taking that much heroin out of Harlem. But in my heart of hearts at the time that I was doing it, I truly believed that I was moving heroin out of Harlem and, and taking it out of harm's way in my community and placing it in communities that I was putting those communities at harm. And that's the part that, that I feel bad about is that I was putting someone else's community at harm. But at the time, it seemed fair to me. At the time, it seemed like the quid pro quo. You know, it was like, that's what they're doing in my community. So I'm doing that in their community. The only person I think that, that could have given me a different perspective on what I was doing was Malcolm X, and Malcolm X was dead at that time. By the time I did it four or five times, I had an organization. I was moving heroin more heroin into upstate New York than anyone ever had. I became the biggest heroin distributor in the area. Once business starts booming, I recognize that it's probably not a wise thing for me to be bringing five kilos of heroin into Binghamton every week. White Boy John he's the guy who first approached me about getting into the business of selling and buying heroin and I started providing him access to the heroin and I became a distributor. Unfortunately White Boy John decided that he no longer wanted to be a part of my organization. So the money that was being sent to me on a weekly or monthly basis no longer came to me. I was like, what's up? So I give a phone call, and I'm like, yo, uh, check this out. Like, I'm not getting no cash. And folks was like, yeah, man, the reason you're not getting no cash is because White Boy John ain't paying. I'm not a happy camper. And I said, okay, I need to straighten this out, with white boy John. He needs to understand that I'm still a man and I'm in charge of everything. And I said oh, to my partner who set up a meeting, I had a partner that I left in charge of things. His nickname was Ty. And Ty and I were really tight. I said, okay, Ty, you know, he said, I got a meeting with white boy John. I said, cool. <laughs> And I get into my Oldsmobile 88 coupe, you know, with the with the convertible top and stuff like that. And we zoom to the place and whatnot. And I get out and out of the corner of my eye, I'm not even believing because I haven't seen dude in, in seven, eight years. It's Carmelo walking down the street in upstate New York. I'm like, yo, Carmelo, what's up, bro? He's like, ah, you know I mean, we get a little excited and stuff like Not normally, most of the time, we cool. We slapped each other five, six or seven times. We gave each other hugs. I mean, you know, like man hugs. You know, because we hadn't seen each other in a while. I was like, yo, my brother, what's up? It's like, cool, dude, I got a meeting. I'm finna go to right now. You know, and as soon as I'm through with this meeting, bam, we together. You know what I'm saying? So we start talking a little bit more. It turns out Carmelo is a hitman now. Man, I mean, okay. So I said, what's up? He said, man, I got to go put this hit on this dude. I got to do this hit on this dude down at this restaurant. What restaurant? He named the restaurant we was going to. And then he told me that it was White Boy John that put the hit out. I was like, White Boy John put the hit out? He said, yeah. He said, you know White Boy John? I said, dude, dude, I invented White Boy John. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he worked for me. Yeah, the the hit is on my partner that I'm going to the meeting with. White Boy John put a hit out on Ty. Oh man, that's like real messed up, you know? So Carmelo realizes that the hit is on the dude that I'm just standing there talking with us. In the moment that I realized that there was a hit on Ty, I realized that I had become involved in all the things that Malcolm told me to avoid. It was more than full circle because Carmelo was about to kill my best friend, and Carmelo used to be my best friend. So it was it was a, it was a, it was total craziness. It's tricknology, is what what uh, uh, Malcolm called it. Without a doubt, it is a trap. We walked out out of that parking lot. Dude, how much money you got? Man, I got the 3000 from him and, and um, how much money you got? I don't have no money, bro. Okay, we don't have any money. We technically don't have any place to live and we don't know where we're going and we don't know where any more money is going to be coming from. We have no idea of where money is going to come from ever again in our lives. But we knew for a fact that we were through in the drug business. We knew for a fact that we would not be selling any more heroin. And we never, any of us, ever had anything to do with heroin again in our lives.
0: Big thanks to the Oakland OG, Abdul Kenyatta. Find out more about Abdul at snapjudgment.org. The original score is by Renzo Gorio, and that piece was produced by Anna Sussman. When Snap Judgment returns, what if everything you ever thought about where you came from Turns out to be a lie when the technology episode continues, stay tuned. Pants with a belt, collared shirts, Oxfords. I haven't put on a suit jacket since the pandemic started in this new world. We have new priorities. And Allbirds has something that might help with that because feeling good goes beyond Allbirds' amazing footwear. Introducing the all-new Trino underwear from Allbirds, whether well, it's a woman's bralette, brief, shorty, or thong, or the men's boxer briefs. With Allbirds Trino underwear, you can get intimate with nature with intimates made with nature. Your private parts and the planet will love Allbirds Trino underwear. Find your pair at Allbirds.com. Everyone has stuff they don't use. And people will pay good money for those things on Mercari, the app that makes it fast and easy to sell almost anything. Just download the app, take a few pics, add a description, and it's listed. And everything ships, so there's no meetups. Sell and buy almost anything from home on Mercari. That's M-E-R-C-A-R-I, Mercari. Find it on the app stores or Mercari.com. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the tricknology episode. Next up, a story about the most personal kind of subterfuge. Our own Liz Mack spoke to Mike Siv. Snap Judgment.
2: Nine-year-old Mike was sitting on the couch at home in San Francisco watching a movie with his mom.
3: And I guess somehow she was just too tired. Um, She fell asleep. And all of a sudden, I hear a... (laughs) It's like somebody is choking her. I know she has a nightmare, but I don't know what to do. She's just squirming, like moving around. And then she's, she's just trying to break free from something. She wakes up, it's like nothing happened. She goes to the restroom, I'm like, hey, what the hell just happened? Did you know you just have a nightmare? And it's like very laissez-faire answer. Well, yeah, well, you know, it's probably just dreaming about the Khmer Rouge. That was it.
2: Before this, before he lived in an apartment with a TV and couch in San Francisco, Mike was a child of war. Not just war. The Camodian genocide by the Khmer Rouge. His memory of the war and the genocide is spotty, like a flickering TV signal. And that's partly because of the nature of the war itself. Along with their campaigns of torture, mass murder, and forced labor, the Khmer Rouge agenda was to wipe out Cambodia's history altogether. The regime had a slogan. We will burn the old grass, and new will grow. Books were burned, teachers rounded up and killed. The leader of the Khmer Rouge declared the nation would start again at year zero.
3: She tells me that they are people that has no soul. These guys are so evil that it's horrifying. I'm lucky that we survived.
2: The Khmer Rouge killed over 2 million Cambodians, nearly a quarter of the entire country's population. Those that survived, like Mike's family, were captured relocated, and often put into prison camps or labor camps.
3: And you just literally work in the fields, like hard labor.
2: Because Mike was only four at the time, and his memory so spotty, his mom would sometimes tell him what life had been like for them in the camps.
3: She tells me a lot about there's just no food. A lot of people died off starvation.
2: Mike and his mom were separated from Mike's dad during the war. And this was another strategy of the Khmer Rouge. Separate family members in order to build a new society. So his dad was sent to a men's labor camp. Mike and his mom worked in a separate labor camp for four years.
3: The story that she would tell me is that, you know, when when they let you have rice porridge, they they give you like almost a whole pot of water, but then they put like maybe Not even half of of rice in there, right? So all you pretty much do is drinking water. So she would always tell me, like, you almost starved to death. I would scoop all the rice for you, and I would drink all the water. I almost died every day.
2: As the war escalated, in 1978, the Vietnamese Air Force bombed Cambodia, and chaos began to take over the countryside. Mike's mom saw an opportunity to escape. (laughs) She took her young son, and before running to the Thai border, she ran for home, for her village, to look for her husband. They met him halfway to the village, on the roadside, in the middle of a war zone. This scene, the one Mike is about to describe, is a scene Mike will try to understand for the next two decades. Here's what it seems like we know. Mike heard the sounds of the bombs in the distance.
3: I think I remember kneeling down and covering my ears, and I think that that's pretty much it.
2: Here they were, by the roadside, face to face, after years of separation. Now they could all make it out of the country and out of the war together, as a family. But it turned out Mike's dad had another plan. Although it was a war, Mike's mom said that his dad didn't want to escape.
3: He says for us to leave.
2: In fact, he wanted to be left behind. He pushed them to go.
3: You might not have a chance if you don't leave now. My mom says, no, my dad should come too. So my dad says, well, I'm not leaving.
2: The way Mike's mom described him His dad was a patriot, a hero, a man unwilling to leave his country behind in the hands of the enemy.
3: She begged him to come.
2: So Mike and his mom escaped the Khmer Rouge. They had nothing, only memories of their family briefly reunited. And they had each other. A few years after settling in San Francisco, Mike learned he would never see his dad again.
3: There was this one time... And I say to her, uh, Well, you know, what happened to my, my, my father? She says, Well, your father, he's uh, hard headed and he's very patriotic and he wanted to fight for his country. What can I say? He's dead.
2: So Mike lived with these blips of memories and information. And for any questions he had, there weren't places to find an answer, no real way to put the pieces together. When the history books were burned, Cambodia lost a part of its history. And Mike lost a part of his. All he had left was the story of a hero who put his country first, even though it meant abandoning his family.
3: Every day of my high school life, for four years, when you—I mean, Jesus, even if I watch The Lion King, you know, you see like Musafa or whatever it is, it's like, what would it be like to have a father, right? And somehow, one day, I think I was about 14 years old, she comes and she knocks me on the feet and she says, Hey,
2: no your dad's alive. Relatives in the U.S. had visited Cambodia. And one day, they saw a man on the street who they swore looked exactly like Mike's dad. So Mike's relatives started to look for him, to ask questions and to visit villages where his dad might be. And they found out Mike's dad was alive. This is not an uncommon story. For decades after the genocide, Cambodians separated from their loved ones by the war have been uncertain of the fate of their family members. Even today, people are still searching.
3: There are probably thousands of questions running through my head, you know The first thing is, okay, if he's alive, what now? You know after 10 years are you gonna you know connect? Um, can we be a family again?
2: And of course, there was the question that had always silently haunted Mike and his mom.
3: Why did my dad make that decision to stay? I can see she's dealing with it in her own way. And, and, I, and the sad part is that I'm dealing with it in my own way, but we don't deal with it together.
2: This had always been a part of their relationship. Mike's mom didn't know how to deal with the trauma of the war any other way, except on her own. So they didn't talk about it for 10 years until, at age 24...
3: I was about to graduate from state. I had two classes left. I mean, by God, two classes. I'm a guy from the Tenderloin that nobody expects to go to college and graduate. Why am I not happy? And I'm
2: thinking, gosh, you know, I gotta, like, take care of this issue. That's when Mike decided to go to Cambodia. But first, he had to tell his mom.
3: I was driving back, of course, home, and then um, I'm prepping myself, like, okay, how am I, what, what am I going to tell her? And how, how am I going to approach her? So she gets home. Usually, I just wait here for her to um, uh, settle down, because she's always running around back and forth. I just say, hey, I'm going to think, I'm thinking about going to Cambodia. No. That's what she says. Straight out, no. I said, well, it's been like almost 15 years, and you haven't really told me much, I'm going to go.
2: Mike's mom told him it was a bad idea.
3: You got to be careful because your dad is um, not a, you know, he's not all that great of a person. She doesn't trust my father. I don't know why. She won't go into it. She's not making sense and nothing's making sense. So I figured, you know what? I'm going to Cambodia. I'll make sense of it myself.
2: When Mike arrived in Cambodia, he got on a boat headed to Battambang.
3: We take a, uh, an eight-hour boat ride.
2: Up the river to where his dad lived. He planned to spend the next two weeks there to get to know him. It was six in the morning, and it's hot. That's when Mike turned on his video camera and rolled tape. What you're hearing is actual footage of Mike's trip.
3: Every hour felt like probably a month or two. And I've thought about this moment, how many years, you know, X amount of years. Now I'm gonna actually get to meet this guy, that that I really look up to, but never even know. And I'm thinking, like, why am I so nervous? You know. In the boat, I it's like if I if I was in charge, tell you the truth. I would have said, let's just turn it around. I don't want to go. The driver says, we're here. So it took, it felt like a long time to get there, but all of a sudden, it's too quick. We get off the boat. I looked up, and I immediately, immediately spotted my dad. Oh, I think they're up there, dude. I see him, Over there. Okay. The old shirt? And I said, that's my father. And my dad was wearing peasant clothes. He, he was wearing a kind of a, a yellow, brownish shirt. He sits down. He points. It's like he's got this macho in him like he's confident he's on the hill I'm, I'm walking up and I'm trying to go up there to just meet him I'm running or trying to move 100 miles an hour everybody else seems slow when I'm walking up I'm just waving and, all, and my first word was hi dad <laughs> <laughs> uh, me. and he didn't he just said uh-huh uh-huh and then he tries to give me a hug. There's no like, there's no high sun. It's it's a it's not how I imagine it to be. I mean, I swear it was it's like the awkwardest moment in my life. So that night we wanted to go to my dad's place. Oh my gosh, uh, it's like he lives in the worst condition. The whole complex, it's beat down at 30. There's a broken down building like that. It's went through war. There's no light. We have to use flashlights to see where we're walking to, like the third floor. Couldn't really see all the stuff, but I could tell there's no maintenance. The ceiling were, uh, uh, I guess, broken. And water was dripping down, and I think that's why they, I saw a lot of the mud and dirt on the stairs once we got there i knew he had a family but holy mother there were like eight kids again it's really dark they use candles so that we can see the the room and so we all sat in this kind of a, a room and everybody's all eyeing me
2: what is it like to see his kids
3: I mean, I, 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 on one hand, I'm going through the motion of getting to know my father. You got all these kids. So I asked myself, okay, you always fought to stay with your dad in some sense. You always dreamt of, of, of living with your father.
2: He realized if he had stayed.
3: This is the condition that I would live in. But at the same time, he's raising them. That night, I just kind of tried to be as respectful and polite as I can. But I'm thinking, like, wait a minute. You could have done this with us.
2: Mike wanted to meet more members of his family. So he went to pay a visit to his great-aunt, who'd taken care of him when he was little. When he arrived there, she showed him to the back of her house, where they could sit down and talk.
3: And she starts to, like, just cry. Like, it's really awkward. It's like, why are you crying? So then she leans over. And she says, you know, if you want to know, your mom wanted to stay.
2: She told Mike that the story his mom told him, that his dad had sent them away to keep them safe, wasn't true.
3: I'm trying to register all this.
2: God, you know, it's it's like,
3: why, why is this so complicated?
2: His aunt said that day in the war zone, when they met by the roadside, his dad had given him and his mom no choice. She told him the version of the story that she knew. And it wasn't the story of a war hero leading his family to safety while staying behind a fight. In this story, Mike's dad actually took a gun and shot at his mother.
3: Because he didn't want her to stay, he shot at her, meaning he had a gun. He had a gun and he shot indirectly at my mom. He forced her. And she says the real reason why is because he had another wife. I don't know. I don't know what to make of this man, if that is the case. And I said, you know what? I got to talk to him. Yeah. So I'm walking up to uh, his place. He asked me, well, so what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I just want to come and chat, right? As we sat down on the ground. So I asked him, I said, you know, um, Mom, uh, you uh, forced her to leave. So he looks, he stares, and I can see. He's already worried about what to say. And he tells me what my mom tells me, which is, I wanted you guys to leave because of your future. Okay, Then I say, well, didn't you have another wife? He, he looks, he goes, yeah, but you, I, I thought you were dead.
2: And his father told him the story as he remembered it.
3: Then he explained that, you know, during the camps, men and women were separated. You and your mom were over there, and I was in the men's camp. News came to me that you guys were dead. And when that happened, I I fell into a depression. So this woman who happens to take care of me, you know, we we fell in love.
2: He'd already had a child with this woman, this new woman, who he met when he believed Mike and Mike's mom had been killed. When he found out that they were actually alive, he went to look for them, just as they were trying to escape the country. That's when the three of them met on the roadside, and he decided to tell them to leave. And
3: I I, I see the difficult dilemma that he's in. Two women, three kids. Okay, I get that, but you found out we were alive. Why did you not go with us? And I'm looking at him. He's a little surprised that I'm asking him that question. He says, you know, I wanted you and your mom to go because for your uh, for your future. I think he uh, believed that whatever he did was clear. The way he says it to me is like, this is the truth. This is how it happened. And you're asking me and I'm telling you. You know, it's like there's no point in talking to him at that point because... He hides behind the war. Then I said, okay, I understand the war. I understand you did this for me and mom or whatever, okay? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue with that. But here's what I'm telling you. If I'm you, okay, if I'm a father, I would have wanted to stay with my wife and kids. I'm not thinking about the war. I'm thinking about you as a father. He he almost cried. Uh, he looks in the air and, you know, he takes off the glasses. Well, he, first of all, he looks at me and he's, he's kind of like, oh, that's what he meant all this time. I can see in his eye that he gets what I'm trying to ask. I'm thinking, okay, is he going to say something that has meaning. If he would just talk and not think, like if he went with his emotion, I think that would have been what I was looking for. But instead he shook himself from that emotion and he wouldn't go to that that place. Somehow the man in him shifts. And he puts down his book. He looks in, looks at me and I look at him. There's a little bit of a pause. You know, in the 10, the ten seconds that he's trying to think, he flips and throws down his journal and he starts yelling at me. Then he says, yeah, I get it, you know? Um, but what you don't get is, it ain't my fault. You don't understand because you didn't go through it like how we did. If you want to blame anybody about how your life is or how hard it was for you, blame it on Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. Don't blame it on me or your mom.
4: And and
3: that is what he's going to take to the grave.
2: And what do you really want from him? Like, what kind of thing do you want him to say?
3: What I wanted to hear was very simple, was that I get what you're talking about, you know, and I'm Sorry. I'm sorry that, you know, you, you, you had to go through this.
2: When Mike got back from Cambodia, he and his mom didn't talk about the trip. But she asked to watch all the VHS tapes he'd recorded while he was there. And at nighttime, when she thought she was alone, she would watch the videos of Mike and his father together. She never mentioned it. And then, one day...
3: I'm walking in the kitchen just to grab something and she's washing dishes and she says uh, in and in my mom's tone is um, I saw you talking to your dad all of it and he's not wrong and um, you're you're being too hard on him she says he, he did think that we were dead So I don't say nothing. I'm like, okay. And then she just goes on about, he chose his own fate. Poor guy chose that fate. She even said it. She goes, oh, now he knows he made a mistake. He knows that. And I feel bad
4: for him.
2: If you ask Mike about the war, he can't tell you the specifics of where he was or what exactly happened. But sometimes he'll get these flashes these blips of being there. He'll watch a war movie and hear bombs going off in his head. But because he can't really remember, he has to choose how to remember, how to rebuild his past, starting from his own year zero.
3: If I think hard enough, if I really, 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 really just sit down and think, which I don't want to, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to to really get into that moment where I remember. But I remember now that they were dragging me back and forth. I don't fully think that my mom and him agreed that I should go. But I remember her yelling, screaming that no way she's going to leave without me. I can see the bombs still. I can see them arguing back and forth. I'm, and I'm like crying, you know, in, in, in the midst of this chaos. I'm covering my ear because it's too loud. They're pulling me. I don't know what's going on. That's when it stops. My mom tells me that he forced us. I still believe that he wanted me to stay.
0: big thanks to Mike Siv Mike recently completed his first feature documentary film Days of Justice it's airing on PBS later this year keep an eye out Mike is also working on a graphic novel about his experiences as a refugee growing up in America thanks too to Spencer Nakasoto the footage in this piece came from his documentary starring Mike called Refugee check out more about Mike and Spencer's work at snapjudgment.org original score by Leon Morimoto, it was produced by Liz Mack. When Snap Judgment continues, what is a Confederate bar doing in Northern California? And why? Why did Joe decide it was a good place to spend the evening? All that and more, so much more. When Snap Judgment, the Tricknology episode returns, stay tuned. from WNYC. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the technology episode. My name is Glenn Washington. Today, we're talking to people trying not to get played. And now, through the magic of modern storytelling, we take you to the Snap Judgment live stage, and we've saved you the very best seat in the house. Joe Klosik. Um.
4: I'm a stand-up comic, and I get an email for a gig in the Northern California town of Redding. If you don't know Redding, California, I think the best way to describe it is, it's where 1972 went. (laughs) The email starts out with this disclaimer, quote, please be advised this venue prominently displays a Confederate flag. It's not indicative of their philosophy there. I've booked many diverse shows at this venue. Have fun. How could I not take that kick? I get up there and I'm standing outside the place. There's a doorman. I've never met him. He's never met me. First words out of his mouth to me are, you know, I can always tell when black people are around. Whoa. Yeah, so can I. They're black. Are you a psychic racist? And I walk into the place, and I look up, and yes, there's a Confederate flag, but above it is the biggest American flag I've ever seen in my life. I want you to think, like, Chevy truck commercial, halftime at the Super Bowl, America big. And then under it is the Confederate flag, and hanging on either side of it are those naked women mudflap silhouettes. Classy, right? Hanging at the bottom of the Confederate ball- disco ball. This is the most confused dream catcher ever. Does it come together in some way? Is there a meaning, you know? America, if you're different, we don't want you. Women are objects, gays are okay. I don't think that's what it meant. Right before I come on stage, the owner comes up to me and says, don't make fun of the Confederate flag. Let me tell you guys something, maybe you know. If you want a comedian to not make fun of something, don't tell him to not make fun of it. 10 minutes into the show, I look out at the crowd, I look up at the flag, and then I go, what's up, Dukes of Hazard fans? <laughs> That's when everything changed. <laughs> this low, mean sound came out of the crowd. They hated what I had just said, and I was too busy worrying about that because out of the darkness, objects started coming at me. At first it was just a fry basket and then some fries and then there was like a fork and then there was a rock. A rock? Someone brought a rock in here? Why is there a rock? More stuff is coming at me. They're yelling stuff at me. You suck, get off the stage. Your family tree probably looks like a pretzel. More stuff is coming at me. I'm dodging a boot, a belt buckle, a belt buckle. And they are getting me. They are getting me, and I am backing up. And then I remember I'm a comic. I am a comic. These are my words. This is truth. I am not going to back down. There's no way I'm going to back down. And then they all come together to chant. We're number one. We're number one. We're number one. We're number one. Really? Because that flag means you're number two. After all the tables got put back right and <laughs> the cops left and I got paid somehow, I walked out of the building and I'm headed towards my car. And like somebody had just been in an accident, all of the adrenaline drains out of me. And I suddenly realize I almost got killed back there. Those guys wanted to kill me for jokes and words and I can feel my body shake and I I silently resolve to never put myself in that position again. I'm almost at my car when this guy gets directly in front of me. I call him a tether drunk. You know what a tether drunk is? They look like this. It looks like they're going to fall, but they never quite do. Yeah. I'm getting dizzy just trying to keep eye contact. And he gets in my face and he goes, I don't like what you said about the flag, boy. And I can feel that comic rage rise again, and I'm just like, why are you so proud of it? I don't take people back to my house and show them my collage of losing lottery tickets. Take it down. (sighs) Yes, but you weren't there that night, were you? And I can see in his eyes, he's gonna throw a punch. And he starts to, but he's so slow and so drunk that all I have to do to avoid the punch is literally just go... (laughs) His fist goes past my head. He pulls it back and I straighten up. And what makes this amazing is what this guy said next. He just looks at me and goes, all right, you're pretty fast, Matrix.
0: Amazing funny man, Joe Klosek. If he's on tour, go see him. If not, bring him to see you. Original score by Alex Mandel for Snap Judgment Live. Performed by Alex and the Snap players, Tim Frick and David Brandt. It's time, but know this. The hottest storytelling podcast in the nation is only a couple clicks away. Take Snap Storytelling with you wherever you go. On your pocket phone, computer device thingy Now on Spotify Yeah, iTunes Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud The Snap Judgment Podcast Snapjudgment.org Snap is produced by a team so tricksy you think they were running for office Please show your love and devotion For the man of the hour The Uber producer, Mark Ristich The beard master, Pat Masidi miller Beardless, Anna Sussman Joe, the bad brawler, Rosenberg, Nancy, Upside Down Lopez, Eliza, Downside Up Smith, Renzo Goriel's band Hydroplane has a new album out called Panda available everywhere. Leonto Morimoto, Trixie, Tail, Decat, Adiza, Egan, Bobs, Liz, Matt, Weaves, and Jasmine Aguilera simply won't fall for it. Now, you may have heard something different from the bad kids with their funny cigarettes hanging up behind the bleachers, but this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could run into a California Confederate bar sporting your Black Lives Matter t-shirt and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.